I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Empire of the Sun. Spielberg season continues with this 1987 adaptation of J.G. Ballard's semi-autobiographical story based on his experiences of getting caught up in the Japanese invasion of Shanghai during World War II. The story itself follows preteen Jamie, a pampered British moppet living with his wealthy family and unaware of the impending breakout of war. Far from being intimidated, he is fascinated by soldiers and especially planes. The story takes him from a costume party to a panic in the streets, separation from his parents, an attempt to survive alone before falling in with some disreputable Americans and ending up in a series of prisoner camps. It is a tale of survival and the loss of innocence, and it is fairly grueling to watch. Uh, It's two and a half hours long and you feel every minute of it, though it is beautifully shot and scored and intensely acted by a, a young Christian Bale. And with us we have a fellow who absolutely definitively reserved a spot on this particular show as soon as he heard the words Steven Spielberg season, Mr. Brendan Agnew. Hello, Brendan. Hello. Would you like a Hershey bar? Uh, I, I would. <laughs> well, sorry, we coronavirus. Can't, sorry. Of no, course. No more Hershey bars. Well, you can send me a virtual Hershey bar. We're allowed to do that digitally still. <laughs> can send me the, 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 the symbolic image of a Hershey bar. Okay, so, um, by the way, like this has happened so fucking fast that the podcasts I listen to haven't quite caught up with the pandemic yet. Like, the, no one's mentioned it yet because they recorded a few weeks ago. And uh, it's 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 weird, like, we're suddenly going to hear loads of people talking about it. I don't know, I feel like people aren't going to want to, because if they're joking about it and it suddenly gets a lot worse, mm. that's going to date mighty fast. Uh, I, well, you can mention it and just say, well, this sucks, without making jokes about yes, it. this is true. Kind of like Australia being on fire. Mm. Well, it's been a great year so far. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some movie chat. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So, uh, how much do you folks know about uh, Ballard's original book? For me, nothing. When I first saw this movie, I was back in high school, and I didn't actually read the book, but I, you know, thumbed through it because this was my introduction to the story, and I did a little bit of research about what the differences were. Um, so I, I got a, I got a sense of it. It's, it's a much, for all the the film being bleak and grueling, the the book itself is extraordinarily harsh and graphic in places. Oh um, God! I thought you were going to say it's much more lighthearted. 
Like, no. Oh no! No, no! It's, it's worse. Oh, much worse. The the book ends much later in his course of life, like not by like years and years and years, but it's it's still a not as satisfying a close of okay, we've reunited with the parents, and it's really bad for both of them, but at least they're together. Mm. This is where the story ends. It's it's a lot more harrowing in terms of him coming to terms with the trauma that his parents went through, and them like th- there's stuff about like how he he will always leave a piece of himself behind in Shanghai um it's just, and there's a lot more in terms of like graphic descriptions of of violence and and what's going on with people i i honestly think that one of the best choices that Spielberg made um which we might talk about later is how he uses a lot of the same Spielbergian tricks that he used very well in ET to sort of show a child's view of these horrors so that we're not immediately just vomiting our hearts out in the first 20 minutes. Um, This is a PG on like the uh, R-rated Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, and and he could have gone really dark the way he did with Schindler's List, but the fact that we're seeing this all through Jim's eyes both makes it uh, a little bit less graphic and gruesome and, and it's somewhat easier to cope with. And it also makes that last, I think, 30 minutes mm. hit even harder because we're going through the same visual language as Jim's kind of like internal um, processing of all of this. And also because of the lower uh, certification, uh, that does mean that even though kids won't particularly like watching this film, they they can watch this film. They can engage with this kid's journey because he starts out like so many obviously spoiled, oblivious kids. And, and a child can look at that and go, well, I know a bit more about the world than him already. Mm. So mm. like you're already waiting for him to catch up with you. And then you go along with him and then things get harrowing. I remember seeing this as a very young kid and being kind of overwhelmed by it. I do think there's a, an important benefit that you get from modifying it and making it a little bit more um, child child's eye view rather than child friendly, which is that... Part of the point of the story is Jamie's progression from small child, and he initially, in some ways, he behaves much younger than his chronological age would suggest in terms yeah. of his capability in certain circumstances. Because he hasn't been asked to exactly. test Because that. he's a pampered little muppet, as you point out. Yeah. Um, and as he progresses and his own childhood is kind of stripped away by layers... Spielberg repeatedly comes back to this image of a group of young children running around and playing, even in the most horrendous of circumstances. Mm. And it, it, part of that is, is sort of this way of saying, whatever happens, children will play. And that's a very positive and potentially heartwarming thing. But also, as the story goes on, you get a greater distance between Jamie and these children who are playing. uh, Jamie is uh, proactive and the kids are not. The kids Mm. are just observers. Absolutely, yeah. None more so than that kid in the back of the uh, truck who, when Jamie's running to catch up with the truck uh, somewhere in the middle beginning, uh, the kid's just staring at him, just like totally like frowning on his face, kind of like wondering what's going on and just staring at this kid, just not comprehending. Mm. And uh, there for the grace of God goes Jamie. Yeah, you get this in his his character behaviour throughout the film where there'll be, in a very short space of time, he'll do something very childish or childlike, like 
choosing the dropped toy plane over hanging on for dear life to his mother's hand. Mm. That's a child's decision, an impulse of, I lost my toy, I must get it back. And then barely seconds later, you have the slightly more adult, logical decision to get up on the cart so that he can see her. Yeah. Um, this was originally going to be directed by David Lean, and uh, Spielberg was on as producer, uh, although he did say that as soon as he read the book, he wanted to direct it secretly himself. But he held Lean in very high regard. Two of his favourite films when he was uh, younger were Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai, which was set in a uh, partly in a Japanese prison camp. We saw Lawrence for the first time the other day, and it is fucking staggering. Oh, um, <laughs> I think I may have seen it on TV or part of it a long, long time ago, but on Blu-ray, on a massive screen, the effect is quite different. I am not. Chef's kiss. I am not a particular fan of uh, uh, you know classic cinema, as you may have, have, have noted. That doesn't mean I don't respect it. But some films will blow me away, and Lawrence was one of them. And I can definitely see. The, the lean influences as Spielberg leans on lean uh, in um, uh, in Empire of the Sun it, it feels uh, like it's part of the family if that makes sense like it's taking place in the same world hmm, that would make sense it really does feel it really does feel like it's part of the same I mean universe world that it, it it's not trying to ape Lawrence of Arabia's visual styles for one Spielberg's using the the full frame format as opposed to anamorphic no you're thinking but of definitely, Star Wars there. oh yeah but, <laughs> <laughs> but nice definitely the, the way he the way he does use all of the he he really does use a large canvas still and and he's there there's some shots where it's not it's not really Spielberg showing off but definitely Spielberg flexing some muscles in terms of what can I do to capture an event that is so much larger than this character we focused in on. Um, he's he's very good at these short single take scenes that play with depth. Um, specifically, when they arrive on the truck and are getting out and carrying the rocks, and at first you're just looking at the people on the truck, and then the camera pans in a single shot to show everyone at mm. Su Chow in this huge sweeping vista. It's it's rather. Uh, it, that it reminded really me of the like... shot in Gone with the Wind, which was actually oh, yeah. vis- visually referenced <laughs> in the film, where it sort of pans up and back and and uh, exactly. know, shows the extent of the damage. Yeah, Spielberg definitely likes to to name check his influences mm. here, but I think, especially in terms of, um, I, I don't hold Gone with the Wind in very high regard, but but Neither I do, do I. think he's that is a classic. But I do shot, think he's, but yeah, yeah, but he's very much playing with with that sort of storytelling to very good effect as. Oh, here is Jamie thrown into this much larger, very alien world that's still very recognizably a place on Earth that we could visit. They uh, went to actual Shanghai and uh, brought it back um, 40 some years to uh, what it was like um, back in the streets. And there were extras being uh, um, utilized who actually remembered what it was like there. So it's weirdly it would be like having people on Titanic, on Cameron's Titanic, who were 10 when the Titanic uh, sank that they were on. Um, but I think that might be a little bit harsh. But yeah, there was a, they, they involved a lot of the uh, locals and uh, got you know full clearance from the government rather than just sort of the way that they did with the uh, Temple of Doom, just sort of wading in and telling their own story in, in whatever country they chose. They were striving for more of a sense of accuracy. Yeah, they're very um, almost spiteful towards the the British in this movie. Mm. Uh, well, the, the Westerners in general are partly because Jim has this sort of affinity and admiration for the Japanese as a 
aviation culture, but also because the the way that this movie is structured, you're supposed to think that Jim is a bit of a git. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these shots that are contrasting his very sheltered experience with the realities of, say, the, the, the Chinese trying to get into Shanghai to avoid the Japanese because they think that might be safe there for a couple more weeks. Mm-hmm. Or, or, the, or just the, the British going to their costume parties while they're being escorted by these violent police just beating these people back with sticks. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not a very nice look at colonial Britain. <laughs> I do, even though we do sympathize with them once they're in the prison camps and being, you know, and and being starved and yeah. dying on an individual level. Yeah, but that that sense of we are entitled to be given special treatment—that's something that is very recognisable in that sort of we're British and so give us what we want we've mentality. moved to your country we've also started building houses that you would find in Surrey yeah, uh, in your country let's exactly make it look like, like little England place, because that's the best place in the world and we need to take it everywhere else yeah. but I, I rather think rather than uh, blending in and adapting to an existing culture yeah but having Jamie as the focus point in this gives you a slightly different lens to see it through because there's there's something about the way he interacts with every circumstance he finds himself in which is it's not exactly neutrality, but it is, it's an ignorance that you can forgive because of his age. and because you can, yeah. yeah, you can see the way that he's been brought up. You get that, that intro at the beginning that makes it very, very clear. There is a huge contrast between the opulence he's been brought up in and the poverty that's going on outside. And we start to see the seeds of that mm. before, the, before the invasion even happens. Um, you've got people, you know lost at the side of the road and servants who he seems to think it's okay to treat terribly not because he's a bad kid but because that's how he's seen everybody else treating them my notes here i've got he is a selfish oblivious innocent little tosspot mm, he is indeed and there's there's kind of a there's a way his personality shifts according to where he is and who he's dealing with and it makes that kind of neutrality of attitude come across as a survival mechanism and a way that he will adapt himself to whatever he needs to do in any given situation to get through it. One of the things that I appreciate about Bill's performance, and this might be my favorite performance of his across his entire career, even though it was yeah. his, his first, is that he definitely sells the transformation from naivete to experienced pragmatism. But for one, you can kind of see a bit of his canny attitude, even as kind of a arrogant little jerk. Um, he's he's very much a, a smart kid, even though he's a naive and sheltered kid, and that that comes across in both the way he's constantly questioning his mother and father and, and certain ways that he he obviously knows a lot about the interests that he has. Like, he's very well-read in aviation and all that. Um, but even just in his introductory scene, you get to see 
everything you need to know about this kid. He's a talented singer. Um, he's obviously able to put his mind to things and do them, but he's also a lazy shit because he's just sitting there like going la di da. I don't have to. Oh wait, I have to come in for my solo now. Again, Spielberg's always been good at using visual language to convey character, and and Bale just kind of arriving in this was was very sort of eye-opening for me because this was my first sort of time recognizing him as an actor mm-hmm. uh, as as like, oh, it's that guy and when he was little. Um, but the, the, uh, the other thing that, that I think works really well with his performance is Bale has to sell going from a uh, 9-ish, 10-ish year old to an early teenager, mm-hmm. which is hard to do when you're only separated by a period of months. And the fact that he does act a little bit younger than maybe Jim is supposed to be earlier and then has to act older than Jim's actual years later really avoids the trap of it's a 20-year-old playing a 12-year-old or whatever that you sometimes get with kids and actors playing above or below their ages. Mm. And this was a hugely influential uh, story on me. Um, This is not so much about self-promotion as just, uh, you know... Acknowledging influence when it came, I wrote the character of um, James Penrose in Secret Rooms in 2015, and then when it came to write his origin as a child, it was like, how did this fairly prissy, very sharp British doctor end up in America during this pandemic and then find himself stranded? So I was like, right, if you look back at his age, he would have been about 12, 13 at the time. So I would imagine when the Wendigo outbreak happened, something very similar would have occurred to get him separated from his parents and to have him feel like he was adrift. So he would then really latch on to Weirwood when he finally got there. And there's, I mean, there is a whole sequence where um, he goes back to his parents' house and just inhabits it and lays out his mother's clothing on the bed because he's expecting her back again and sort of you know smells her perfume and um it's very much got its roots in empire of the sun yet he hasn't re-encountered his parents they are gone and uh, there is that sense that i had to write this flashback in Steamheart, and I eventually ended up putting it at the beginning and middle of uh, the expanded edition of secret rooms him making peace with never finding his parents again allows him to decide, you know what, I can move on with the next stage of my life. And that's still in keeping with this story because there are there are moments in this where he turns a corner, where he realizes he can't go back. And he there, there's always moments where some kind of boundary has been breached and it's always an emotional outpouring at the time. Mm. But you can see echoes of it in every personality he adopts and every place he fetches up in every um every role that he tries to fit wherever he is jamie collects mentors yeah he is desperately trying to pick up parents as he goes along and it devastates him every time one of them rejects him for some reason that's one of the reasons the, um, the the dual moving in, moving out, moving in scenes when he goes to the American bunker and then is accepted back in mm. um, is just hits so hard. I mean, obviously, you know, you can see his admiration for Basie as a as a survivor, um, and then you can also see the um, just just the fact that like a uh, Doctor Rollins does the same finger thing on his lip when he's thinking that we see his father do. 
Um, these are good visual shorthands for, oh, this is one of the traits in an in a sort of mentor figure that he's been. That's why he's been latching on to them because they reminded him this part of this part, and the the way that the the victor's just kind of like, yeah, matter of fact, like yeah, come on in, come back, yeah, and and just like she helps him put his stuff back up on the wall, which is literally the picture that reminds him of his parents because it's framed the same way his parents were framed in the doorway when they say goodnight to him that last night there at the house. Wow. Um, These are details I did not spot. Thank you. <laughs> I I like this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I can't watch it often. Uh, yeah. This is like a once every five years or so thing because it just kind of... Yeah, it strips me raw. <laughs> it's not fun. I did it's... interpret the the scene you're talking about where he goes back to um, stay with the victors as uh, a regression. Like he had grown up and gone to live with the Americans. I noted that um, Steve Spielberg mentioned while they were filming, he's like a little Steve McQueen, that he's the one British kid amongst all the Americans. So it's an inversion of The Great Escape. And he's also the one who bravely goes out there to set the traps, and they're all sort of watching him and seeing if it'll, you know, it'll work. And so he becomes kind of the the star for a little bit. And that rush, that sense of I achieved something and was special, is is what keeps him going. He kind of like he latches on. He realizes, even though he can't really put a finger on it, that his survival is contingent on mattering to others. Mm. Oh, absolutely. This is. This is played so well and it's so subtle. I don't entirely know whether Steve, whether Spielberg even knew he was doing it, but there's that that needing to be needed and mattering because of what he can do for other people is the the character that Jim inverted commas because if you notice he has a different name for every phase of who he is. Mm-hmm. There's James, mm-hmm. there's Jamie, and there's Jim, and he identifies differently depending on what he's doing and who he's interacting with Um, but as Jim he is a one man swap shop he has basically set himself up as the fixer in the camp once it gets settled so this only guilty man in Shawshank well indeed (laughs) running around the place being useful to everybody Mm. and when the when the guards turn up and he does this on multiple occasions and it, it took me a little while to figure out where it was coming from because it's not something that I could remember him seeing anybody else doing so it didn't seem as if he was directly uh, mimicking anyone but his get down on your knees and bow when one of the guards is angry mm. and it diffusing the tension mm. and mainly because the guards are loathing of the, the amount of disrespect they're being shown by everybody that they're trying to keep in order well that's the that's the logical element to it that the the respect that uh, that Jim is ostensibly showing them soothes them and makes them less likely to then mm. act violently out of um, being pissed off that they're being disrespected mm. but it also shows that the 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 method of dealing and coping that he has adopted is one of fawning which is it's a, a an extension of the fight or flight instinct some people um and it, it happens quite frequently with with children who are in abusive situations that they literally can't get out of smeagol does this in the two towers like, he brings yes, like yes, Brissa exactly. Coney's when he's it's, trying to ingratiate himself on frodo exactly it's like i can't it's it's obviously all of the decisions here are subconscious because it's it's happening in, in children or people who don't necessarily know this is why they're doing it. But fight is no use to you. You're not big enough and strong enough. They will kill you. Flight, you can't. You're trapped. 
Um, freeze is only a response that's that's intended to give you long enough to make a decision. Mm. And, and the people the who freeze in this film end up left behind, there is presumed that. dead. Indeed. Um, but the only alternative would be to flop, which is to play dead, just collapse on the floor and wait until mm. the bear goes away. So fawn is a reaction which, once it gets results, people will keep going back to, which is to, you know, prostrate yourself, make yourself useful to whatever it is that's threatening you and they will leave you alone long enough that you can get protection puppies do it they lie on their backs and fling their undercarriages up and occasionally they pee themselves just to say to the dog i'm just a puppy i can't even control my bladder exactly and that's you know when you're in a circumstance where you're dependent on the very thing that's hurting you to keep you safe Mm. from other things and feed you that is sometimes literally the only response, and Jim uses it over and over again. For those who haven't seen the film, Basie that we mentioned before is played by John Malkovich, and he's one of uh, him and Joey Pants are these two kind of traders or uh, midshipmen who end up in Shanghai kind of trying to steal things. And as soon as they meet him, they're going through his pockets. And I was, I was like, this actually achieves two things. One, it gets them anything valuable from him, and he's like, yeah, yeah, take this liqueur chocolate. This is yours, totally. Um, and in ingratiates him to them but also they're playing detective and working out you know you have good teeth that means you must have a good uh, uh, good parents who actually give a shit about you which tells them everything about his background but also he's base is very fagin yeah. and that behavior mm. instantly makes you think however nice and ingratiating Mm. he's being at this point you cannot trust this man but Malkovich is playing it super cool and he's got like a a peaked cap on and he's got aviator sunglasses covering his eyes and he's just kind of like drawling everything like Han Solo and then when he eventually gets grabbed by the Japanese and they beat the living shit out of him he tosses his sunglasses to um, Jamie just to to say you know just look after these so they don't break and he's just this kind of middle-aged balding man Mm. and Uh, While Jamie is kind of crestfallen at seeing this happen, it's an essential step for him to realise this guy doesn't have it all together. There are things that I can do which are actually, um, like, like move beyond his slightly more limited grasp on what's achievable here. And to go back to those um, uh, conflict responses that I was talking about, Basie's response is flop. He plays dead. He's like, I'm just going to lie here, let them beat me until they're tired, and then I'll be fine. Yeah. And he does end up surviving as a, as a result of just basically not making waves. Absolutely. These coping mechanisms work in limited mm. situations. But he is sly and opportunistic the whole time. Brendan, go. Well, the, the other thing that Jim accomplishes with the, the, the swap shop thing, the fact that he makes himself necessary in the camp, um, it's also like it's a two-way street because it's also something that he's trying to do to keep as many mentor figures alive as he can uh, especially anyone who he feels connected to from his past I, I can't remember the the name of the older man who he knew from like from from the party while they were still in um in the international sector but um he's he's part of like jim's support network and he by the time he gets to su chow he's already been in the the city like the, the camp where he specifically says this is to see who dies so we already know that he's seen people just drop dead of starvation and disease and whatever else is festering in those places. And so he already knows how fragile life is. And so he's decided not only am I going to try and be necessary to these other people, but this 
this will help me maybe get another day with this person or another week with this person who I need because they will help keep me alive and also because they remind me of my parents. Mm-hmm. The uh, friend of the family that you mentioned before, Maxton, played by Leslie Phillips, Max. is the voice of the sorting hat. Uh, he was also uh, in a various carry-on films. But yeah, he's a, a British actor of some renown. Uh, continue, sorry. But again, that's that's just part of showing how how he's like evolving. But he still keeps even even as as um, sort of ruthless as he can be. He's always got this seed of empathy that he never loses, even even to the point where Basie kind of makes him make the choice between pragmatism and sentimentality at the very end of the film. So I thought that was a, a canny choice by Spielberg and very particularly well executed by Bale. Yeah. And it echoes the uh, the sequence as well. You've got him in the house on his own at the beginning where he's cycling around and just doing random things that his impulse tells him to do and occasionally doing things that echo the structure that he's lost, like setting up the dinner table in the same way that his mother would. Mm. Um, And then you've got him racing around the camp, creating that same sense of, of him running around not being impeded by anyone but with people surrounding him rather than being totally isolated and then towards the end after everybody's gone it goes back to him riding around the, the camp bike, yeah, on his own without again. anybody around mm. there's a there's a couple of bits just if we go back to the beginning uh, um, uh, when they're first going to the party he's dressed as a little Arabian prince just to just to really hammer home how naive he is um and like just it, it also that that gives the uh, the extra little dash of, of colonialism there um, but when they're going through the streets someone selling uh, like raw chickens or something they slam against the window leaving an imprint of blood just foreshadowing the real world all red in tooth and claw is just one window away and it is about to bust through because of course especially since that's the the place they're going to avoid the crowds, which gives you an idea of how packed the other parts of the cities are. Yeah. Um, a couple of notes. The poster for this is absolutely spectacular. Maybe top ten posters of all time for me. Uh, it's it's just... Uh, it's stark imagery. It's this great, you know, beautiful red sun for the uh, for the Japanese flag, but with this sort of spiraling curl of, of black smoke as a, a fighter plane is being downed with the silhouette on the hill of a boy playing with a fighter plane. And it's just the looming shape of Japan and this tiny boy kind of both caught in its, uh, you know, in, in its awesome, all-encompassing power, but at the same time enraptured. It's, you know, beautiful. It is a painting. And uh, easy to find. Just um, uh, check that out. It's also on the, uh, the the Blu-ray box. By the way, the Blu-ray is totally worth getting hold of and seeing. It is a huge step up from the uh, standard definition. One of the one of the things that I wanted to talk about in in terms of Empire of the Sun is kind of its place in Spielberg's transitionary period during the '80s, because we've we've talked about how it really does have a lot of his hallmarks. Um, and it has a lot of the things that we'll kind of see him play more towards during during his period of more realistic fare in the 90s yeah. and, and even, even now more recently. Um, but one of the things that I really found interesting and 
you know, not not just as a, you know, toss off word, but but definitely of interest is how Empire of the Sun is almost this this strange sort of turning point, because in the early 80s, Spielberg had incredible success with things like um, the one, two, three punch of Raiders, E.T., Poltergeist. And then he started to have like some weird rocky periods where Temple of Doom and the Twilight Zone were a giant mess. And then he tried to do something a little bit more realistic with the color purple, which meant to very mixed results and was also whether that was his story to tell is kind of this weird, murky area, especially during that that period in Hollywood, no matter how well-intentioned and well-acted that film was. But Empire of the Sun is kind of like the prequel to Schindler's List, except it's Spielberg not having to completely reinvent his visual style. He's still very, very driven and hungry as a filmmaker because at that point he hadn't been uh he hadn't won best picture best director um he he still had things on his list that he wanted to do he'd experienced enough success that he had a bit of a big stick to swing but he'd had enough setbacks that he really wanted to win and so empire of the sun is it again you know you'll you'll see a lot of these same things later on in his career but it's such a big swing and it's so different and it's him collaborating with people that he hadn't collaborated with before and wouldn't really again like he's got a different director of photography um douglas slocum would come back to do last crusade but you know he was shooting with a different dp for this tom stoppard who wrote um, rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead does this incredibly sly and sort of hopeful but also still very dire adaptation of the book uh it's it's a singular piece of of filmmaking in his oeuvre um, if you go to the cinematographer for Empire of the Sun and then check out his uh, IMDb page, one of the first things he did was be cinematographer on one of Steven Spielberg's shorts in 1968. Oh, wow. Okay. So oh. I, I didn't know that he was he was doing like... So it was a reuniting, okay, technically. Alan Davieu is uh, uh, the uh, the guy in question. So, uh, that, But they didn't work together all that often in between times. But they ha- this was a prior uh, uh, relationship that he was revitalizing. Also, he'd uh, worked on uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial as well, and The Color Purple. So, actually, yeah, he, he was around oh, okay. a lot in the 80s. All right. Yeah, I, I, I had forgotten. Like, for some reason, I was thinking Douglas Slocum was Steven Spielberg's guy for all of the 80s as opposed to just all the, all the indie movies. Holy shit. Uh, Sharon's just pointed to the E.T. poster side by side with The Empire of the Sun. Oh, yeah. The sun and the moon are the exact same size and shape and position. You got the silhouette of the land beneath and the sky out. It's fucking Christ. I never pulled those two together. And if you and if you watch the movie, it's not quite the same thing. But much of it is still shot from the child's eye Hmm? level. Both about a lost boy. Mm. They are. And they're. And the and Empire of the Sun will put its camera a little bit higher, but like the the gag of E. T. where like the entirety of E. T. is shot from Elliot's eyeline, mm-hmm. they do a lot of that in Empire of the Sun, but it it's it's used to even greater effect because you're watching just these these absolute horrors rain down from this place that you can't you can only look up and run away from that first uh, short that uh, alan davy you uh, uh, photographed in fact it was uh, the second thing he worked on was called amblin of course which would of course be where amblin got its name yeah, we were discussing while we were watching the film the the echoes of this that are in ET or vice versa, and that you have these central children who are lost for different reasons, and 
the difference between how they handle it is that Jamie looks for adults who can tell him what's going on and fix things for him. And that is a doomed quest because the adults around him don't know what's going on either and they can't handle this really any better than he can in fact by the end of it he is handling it far better than they but Elliot rather than looking for uh, an adult to save him ends up finding a peer who is at his level who will say okay shit's going down we will work this through together and I think that's the fundamental difference between their two journeys it is, and in terms of the way Spielberg uses this, he's he accidentally got out in front of the genre shift of the 1980s because his bread and butter was stuff like Jaws, Indiana Jones, all this stuff that was more like you know high concept genre stuff that was all the rage after Star Wars. Everyone wanted to, you know, sure we'll give you money for Close Encounters, maybe we'll have a Star Wars. We'll give you money for this, maybe we'll have a Star Wars. And by the time you get to like the mid or the late 80s, that's what studios were turning away from. And so Spielberg was almost accidentally uniquely um, outfitted by by sort of by partly by making this movie to shift into the more realistic era that the 90s really embraced and were really successful for him um, critically and awards wise as well as financially. You mentioned Tom Stoppard did the adaptation of uh, Ballard's book. The one of the other major cinematic journeys that was, of course, hugely influential on me as well, at least the books were, His Dark Materials. Uh, Lyra Balacqua does the same thing as Jamie in that she bounces between um, influence figures, like people who are mentors, people who she changes herself to be more like. So she goes from Egyptians to Lee, you know, Lee Scoresby and Yurik Berenison, and Will eventually she starts being more like. And Tom Stoppard wrote a screenplay for The Golden Compass. And Chris Weitz came in and with a 40-page unsolicited treatment for the studio who said, we love it, we love your moxie, kid. We're going to throw this treatment out the window, write a new script from scratch. Let me ask you, Weitz, what have you done before this? Oh, it's a little film called Chuck and Buck's Fucking Suck. Was it big? It was wildly unpopular. You're exactly the kind of guy we want. And he didn't read Stoppard's version because he didn't want to make a good script so he made his own mediocre film that meant nothing at all so and then he chopped off the ending because the studio wanted a happy ending and so anything of merit that was in there save that for the sequel still waiting on that (laughs) sequel yeah there is that Um, also we could have had a Tom Stoppard screenplay uh, he of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Sam Mendes directing sweet lord but we also could have had Brett Ratner directing, so, you know, at least it ended up just mediocre. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and and Stoppard really is kind of killing it here, because for all that it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie, it does have just this really clean three-act structure yeah. of, of early Jamie um, throwing around into the camps Jamie, and then the everything into the the end stretch of where he's just starting to lose everyone both because of his methods not working and him losing his spot in the American dorm and then everyone getting marched to the the stadium and just starving to death I really wish this uh, movie were less um, familiarly topical than it is right now because I, I have fucking camps just like this in my country and I don't like that 
Um, but yeah, just just the fact that you've got this very clear three act progression in a, in a very long film that's also very episodic because it's it's very much here's Jamie doing this at the party, here's Jamie doing this at the camp. He's got these little mini stories that still Stoppard manages to like weave into this larger tapestry. And of course, prior to Empire of the Sun in 1987, he did The Color Purple in 1985, which, while it doesn't deal directly with pre-Civil War slavery, is set very much in a period of the aftermath of slavery, with the black community very much still trapped. We've done a quick review on this one. So he did slavery, then World War II with a childlike fixation on planes, then with The Last Crusade... Nazis and a very standout flying section. Always obsession with planes again. Hook flying again. Jurassic Park dinosaurs. Schindler's List World War Two. The Lost World dinosaurs. Amistad slavery. Saving Private Ryan World War Two. AI artificial intelligence slavery. But they're robots. <laughs> I think Steven Spielberg watches too much Discovery Channel. Sharks and Nazis. Sharks and Nazis. <laughs> There's a pattern here. <sighs> One thing that's uh, noteworthy is that uh, Ballard in real life was not separated from his parents. So one of the more fictionalized things that happens in the book is Jamie very much being on his own. From the sounds of it, in, in real life, Ballard went along to these camps and did all of the things that Jamie did, but he had his parents there. He didn't have that taken away from him. In a dramatic sense, that makes it a much more engaging film rather than just a family waiting out the war. It becomes about this boy's survival. So as a, sto- as a story beat, that makes sense. It is, however, of note that Spielberg mentions that his parents uh, got uh, divorced when he was 14, 15 years old. And so many of his films are about children being separated from their parents, husbands being separated from wives, fathers being separated from kids... And it just keeps recurring over and over again. Something like something draws him in and gets him fired up when when he sees a kid lost or or, or a, a father not knowing what to do. Well, I've said this before. Directors, particularly directors who are throwing themselves into the art that they craft, this is their therapy. They are working their own story through over and over again to try and reach some kind of conclusion even if the only conclusion they reach is that they get to communicate that part of their story to somebody else yeah yeah um close encounters of the third kind is almost explicitly about spielberg working through why did my dad leave what could be so important that would make um that would make my parents split up et is like okay it must have been aliens better be aliens dad (laughs) anything less than that i refuse it was mexico with sally (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and 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 then it, it, ET is like him going, okay, so how does this affect the family that stays at home? You know what what could have taken the place of that? You know, if I can rewrite my life and say, okay, how would this have been better? It's yeah, he, you're not wrong. He's very explicit about about this, and I think that's one of the things that really resonates with people, even mm. if they haven't ever been through those things before. It's still even when buried under these big genre ideas, it's a very relatable human condition that's it, it feels honest it doesn't feel while spielberg can at times feel very um emotionally manipulative that's one of the core things that always feels honest and real about his work as opposed to just 
the the things that we tend to write off as Spielbergisms. I think the reason it feel it can feel manipulative sometimes, and there are also he's really good at directing young actors. Oh my god! Yeah, he yes. he he, oh, he gets totally. right down and to their level and, and explains it to them in a way that's. Um, like he reckons with them and he doesn't patronize and he sort of acts out how he wants them to be. And he's like, right, I, I need you like, you know, gas, but like with the eyes, it's got to be bigger, bigger, like, you know, like, and like give me an action figure pose as you oh, I'm sort of going past so I can really see the expression. So that, that way you don't end up in the trap of having a young actor who's just not really emoting mm. at all. Like yeah. that kid who plays Danny in uh, The Shining, who I'm assuming was told once by Stan, okay, I want you to be like, ah, and that's basically and that's the one time you're scared. But the... That being able to relate to his child actors comes from a place of having a, a childlike view himself that he can tap in and yeah. out of when he needs to. Yeah. And that ties in with what I was going to say about, I think, one of the reasons that a lot of people interpret him as being emotionally manipulative is because he he uses fairy tale language. He uses fairy tale symbolism. Things are louder than they are in real life they are bigger they are brighter and more colorful and expressions are more over the top and it is it's the purpose is to allow what he's saying to be communicated to as many people as possible and i do think that there is a sizable slice of the population who feel that that is manipulative because they feel like they're being talked to through fairy tales which they feel like they've grown out of but one of the reasons that I, despite myself, am a huge fan of the work of Spielberg and Cameron. Cameron and was the other person I was thinking exactly. of who gets accused of being emotionally manipulative. As is Abrams, whose films I adore. Why is a Skywalker excluded? And there is a reason why we're focusing during this season a lot less on the Spielberg films of the past 20 years and a lot more on the films of the first 20 years. I feel like he actually worked through a lot of that stuff between 75 and 2001. Maybe something in that, we'll talk about that later. But I, And I've said this many, many times before, there is a world of difference between creating a narrative that evokes particular emotions that you as a director want to evoke and have your audience responding with and simply doing something that will push the adrenaline button mm. and a lot of people seem to conflate the two and think that it's the same set of skills it really isn't there's also a mixture of the the somewhat gross and the somewhat silly that Spielberg can can revel in sometimes to not great effect uh, Temple of Doom mm. um, but but sometimes Ooh, snake to, surprise, <laughs> but but sometimes to to very very good effect. Uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, which you know, Alex, you you mentioning Super Eight. That's one of the the few films that anyone's done trying to recapture that '80s flavor mm. or or late '70s flavor that really kind of matches that sort of anarchic and somewhat gooey energy that comes with a. Um, that that particular filmmaking style that was going on a lot, but also dealing with kids and how they tend to respond to situations with, you know, their fascination with gross stuff and, and silliness. We're going to totally do Super 8 at some point uh, later this year. And I will ask the question then. Everyone back in 2011 was like, bah, this is just doing Spielberg-type, Amblin-type stuff. Don't want to know anything about it. Fucking Stranger Things comes along and he's just like, oh, inject it straight into my veins! 
Yeah, that was a precursor of things to come, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I like them both but, a lot. Uh, but the uh, uh, the the other thing that I feel that this this film does particularly well um, is it's it, it's kind of really leaning into certain visual takes that Spielberg does, but it's it's also showing an an impressive amount of taste, uh, which. It could have gotten him in trouble considering how many clashing cultures he's having to deal with, the the Japanese, the Chinese, the British, uh, like, colonialism going on. Um, There's – the fact that he did Temple of Doom just a few years before, which has that incredibly tone-deaf finale of, yay, the British are here to save the day. Whoa, whoa, wait, hold on, what? (laughs) Whereas – Whereas this has, you know, you still very much get the the exaggerated things from Jim's point of view, um, especially the uh, the bombing of the airbase next to the prison camp, where he sees the the Cadillac of the Skies moment, the the very dreamlike, um, and and this was something that that was invented for the film of him like touching the plane and saluting the fighter pilots. Um, there's there's a very deft, gentle hand that Spielberg's using as well as his kind of like more more wild out there familiar energy when dealing with child uh, children in larger than them subjects Mm. Uh, also worth mentioning john williams score in this one it has just the the central theme that it's absolutely heartbreaking to listen to and as it rises up it just grabs you and pulls you along with it it's it's got that childlike innocence to it but there's such a mournful tone to it it reminds me of titanic Huh. Yeah, I can see that. That that wasn't a that wasn't a parallel that I'd drawn before, but yeah, that really is I, I mean John Williams and James Horner uh striking very uh similar melodic chords is, is not necessarily new, but yeah. that's because those are guys who know what freaking works. Another thing I noted is that survival in this new state of starving, desperate imprisonment, once he actually gets to the first prison camp and starts to learn quickly, he like um, he gets handed a second potato bowl by uh, Basie from a woman that he knows to be dead. He then goes and very carefully snatches a uh, bowl from a man who appears to be dead. And this is you know this is all predicated on a wiliness a speed and agility um at mental and physical that is and constantly keeping yourself moving whilst closing yourself off emotionally and jamie manages to not completely do that like but basically basically takes it to the point where he's like what do you, you care kid it's just a, a, a dead pilot you know like I, I cannot see why anybody would care about anything he's gone so far off the cliff of survival that there's almost nothing to survive for and the and we get a, a piece of what happens in the book in that particular they do a lot of compression with this because there's more extended sequences of like the the mad max-esque 
um, guys in cars with guns and bandoliers of ammo, and for some reason, young Ben Stiller is there. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I was like, he was twenty-one years old. It was his first dramatic role. But you're right about Mad Max. But both Sharon and I said it at the same exact time. It's like yeah. it's the shoulder pads and bits of garbage, yes. uh, you know, the armor that that do it. Yeah. And I don't think that and, was a mistake. I think oh, no, and watched the Road Warrior and went, "Yes, I want that." Absolutely, flying jacket, walking boots. That is a mismatch. <laughs> that tells me it's Mad Max. And. The, and the like the contention over those those airdrops and the base it's kind of this this more protracted like um people like bandits and raiders fighting over this sort of area in, in the book which i think spielberg and stoppard very cannily sort of compress things towards the end so they can i mean the thing is with a book and a movie you you have to translate the endings differently that's why the scouring of the shire was never going to work in the in the movie mm. um but with the the other um, piece that that goes along with what you were saying, Alex, is is the way he deals with learning these things, but also sort of adapting them. The shoes particularly come to mind, where he doesn't want Basie to take the shoes off the dead woman's feet while her children are watching. Yeah. And later on, he is more than happy to have a dead person's shoes, but it's he asks the doctor if he can have them after the like. It's he's still trying to incorporate these survival mechanisms but in a in a way where he can still feel kind of able to look his parents in the eyes again whenever he sees them because that's always something like he wants to be able to go back to that and not go beyond a place where he feels like he can have that kind of love and affection and still be deserving of it Mm. Mm. yeah and that what you're saying about the the adaptation from book to film and the choices that directors will often make to tone down sections which are particularly despairing i think one of the reasons why that is often done is that with a book if you read through a section like the scouring of the shire or something that really does take you down incredibly low you can put that book down, breathe, and kind of come to terms with it, make your own peace with it before you carry on. With a film, you don't really have that choice. I mean, obviously, technically, yes, you do, you can pause it, but the the pace of the film is to pick you up and carry you straight on into the next part of the story. If you are still down on that level of despair, you will not engage with whatever the next part of the story is going to be. Exactly, yeah. There's you, you have to let the audience have some breathing space and there's a point where you just have to wrap things up and not just dwell and and just wallow in dourness. It just doesn't work, especially when and again, he's using a lot of things to try and lighten the mood. But it is still a two and a half hour movie about a kid who winds up in a concentration camp. Well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> there is just that. jolly that one up a little bit, shall we? <laughs> so it's you know, it, there's. There's there's a fine line he's trying to walk between making this palatable, but also not trying to to just punish you with it. It's it's really it's a really tough needle to thread. Yeah, and not to take the edge off too much because then you hit the point where well, why are you even telling this story if you're sanding it down that much? And they do a lot to to sort of like streamline things. There's a lot that's shown and not told or over explained. Like they give you a brief overview of what the international settlement is like. But there's there's just things that happen in the film that you aren't always given the entire explanation of the the bodies we see in the river. It's well, it's because the war's right outside. People are, you know, dumping their dead in the river and they're floating into Shanghai because that's where the river's taking them. Mm. And so we're getting this this encroaching death on 
and there's just like a bunch of rules that you have to kind of infer by context, which is what Jamie has to do anyway. So it's it's doing that um, utilitarian thing of not doing over explanation and loading you down with exposition, but it's also using the language of I'm telling the story from a child's point of view to effectively put you in that emotional headspace. The film begins and ends with a choir, which Jamie is initially part of, singing Suogan, a uh, Welsh lullaby that uh, is simply a mother saying, I'm here, nothing can trouble you. starts with these floating coffins and it ends on Jamie's suitcase floating in the same bay which you can read all kinds of what is this now a coffin for what has been laid to rest and sent out to sea the lyrics are all around very motherly nurturing Mm. everything's going to be okay kind of language which is obviously in direct contradiction to everything that's going on around him And uh, even though there's this kind of reassuring return to his parents, um, Ballard himself said that it was easier for him to acclimatise himself to this prison camp he was in than it was to reacclimatise himself to peace mm. and to actually get back used to just living in, quote-unquote, civilised society, which, at the very beginning, lasts only as long as it is deemed. As, as soon as civilized society breaks down, this house becomes this museum. It becomes the bones of civilization because civilization only exists if we believe that it exists, mm. if we all agree to it. Absolutely. And that ultimately, that's trauma. You go into something that changes you and you can't put that back in a box and go back to being the person that you were before. You have to go through it. And the the way that Bale kind of carries this through is is one of the reasons I think this might, even if it's not his most transformative uh, role, I think it might be some the of the machinist. best acting he's done. Yeah. Physically um, speaking, think, the machinist was where he actually put himself in physical danger. Yeah, I guys, like, I don't you know do what, I, I, I think people can cool it with that a little bit. We don't need to see. I'm glad he won an Oscar for the for the fighter, because maybe he'll st- calm it down with that from now but um one of the things that one of the things that he does particularly in you know in what what you're talking about um with ballard's uh reaction to the end of the war sharon is the way bale kind of brings that through of you know we always kind of see jamie hiding in there right up until when he's in the orphanage and he's just kind of empty like we we see him surrender to the the americans that come to the camp and you get that kind of like very surreal kind of cute but also really weird thing where he gives him the can of condensed milk and says i surrender Mm. um but but then when you see him next at the orphanage he's basically like this empty shell and he 
he might maybe recognize his parents and notice that they're not recognizing him, or he might just not notice anyone there at all. And it's only when, you know, his mom says his name and then you see just like a little bit of him going, oh, that's right. Because earlier in the film, he straight up said, I can't remember what my parents look like. Mm. And, and and you see, even if he's not quite 100% sure that, okay, yes, I do remember, like, he is finally accepting, okay, yes, this is this is a safe place for me to, again, come out of that shell and and stop retreating back into myself, even for just a little bit, and mm-hmm. getting that, that kind of, like, final closing his eyes and then ending the film on the, the shot of his corpse briefcase that's got the plane in it that was kind of his totem for the entire first three quarters of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it's on the nose, but damn it works yeah well that that going back into safety and the the him the close-up on him closing his eyes is absolutely heartbreaking because that is is symbolic of this vigilance that he's had to live in and he is now finally able to start putting it away and i think the the fact that when he's in the orphanage again it's like i said before he's surrounded by these little children who are playing in a way that he himself no longer can and he's confronted with this wall of mothers who flood the group to to try and locate their children. And it's been so, I won't necessarily say easy, but it's been so instinctive for him throughout the film to surrender to authority, to superior strength to somebody who is a man and older and dominant and he can and do violent that exactly he's, he's been able to do that over and over again but now there's a situation where he can surrender himself to safety and nurturing and he can't do it 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 takes that physical contact with the elements of his mother that he's kind of broken her down to her fingernails her lipstick the the little things that trigger sense memories that kind of connect him or start to connect him back to being that child even if it's even if it's not going to continue past this point it's enough to reestablish the bond enough that he is Oh, yes, that's you. You are my parents. I've just realised there's a mirror scene to this in, of all films, Hook, when that little lost boy is like, is it really, Peter? And then feels him all over his old Robin Williams face and goes, yeah, he's in there. Mm, It's a kind of a to to reacquaint scene. Mm, Absolutely. It is. We, We barely see Jim close his eyes. I'm not sure how often we see him sleep, even though there's so many scenes that very specifically take place at nighttime. Mm. They do a lot of we'll we'll see him at the window where he's playing with the Morse code with the Japanese ships. We'll see him watching the the bombing when he would, you know, supposedly be asleep um, when they're in the camp. So many times when it's nighttime, when other people are resting, Jim can't or won't or just doesn't. And that's one of the few times we see him finally close his eyes like like you said Sharon he's broken his mother down into his her component parts like one of the few things he says he remembers about her is her brushing her dark hair and that's one of the things that he touches to go oh right this is this is safe this is home i can finally i can finally close my eyes and rest absolutely it's like it's almost like his his sight memory has been so overwhelmed by all the things he's had to witness between the start of the film and this moment he has to rely on touch memory and one of the other things that you brought up is i i hadn't even thought about this until my most recent viewing we see a lot of 
of a lot of Jamie and then Jim being surrounded by younger children, mm. at, especially at the camp. There are children there who are like four, five, six, seven kids who this is 1945. They would have been taken there in 1941. This is a group of children who have very few memories, if any, before the war mm. at all. This is just their life and children have a certain amount of elasticity in terms of being able to cope with things if that's all they've known whereas jim has to kind of keep both of these disparate worlds in his like internalized within himself and that makes it particularly difficult for him it makes him a survivor but we also get to see like he he plays at playing but he doesn't play with the other kids the way the other kids play for real if, if if you understand what i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah. uh and there's uh, the the man that he prostrates himself in front of is the brutal japanese camp commander who uh like we said seems to be enraged by the americans and their lack of respect um but there is a an enigmatic quality to him there's a, there's an electric scene right in the middle of the film when they he first reaches the camp and he sees a japanese zero fighter and approaches it and there's these sparks that are just sort of you know flying off the uh, engines and it's in it almost in slow motion and it's this almost religious experience for him and he turns around and salutes the pilots who are standing there who salute him back and there's this is devoid of language, but an accord is reached between these two completely disparate cultures and a respect there. And Ballard himself uh, bore no ill will to the Japanese, despite the brutality that he witnessed at that, that young age. It felt feels like there was a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome in there. The Japanese commander is sort of watching this and actually, uh, when he turns up later on and actually sings this Welsh hymn, to, you know, out of respect for the the pilots, it, it's bringing a tear to the commander's eye because there's many different emotions broiling in him as well, which he can't verbalize mm. and doesn't have anyone to talk to. Especially since that's that's not just the the one that uh, Jim specifically sings and salutes to is a kamikaze ceremony. Yeah. Uh, so these are these are people who are not just you could die. This is your purpose is to crash your plane into something else, and you are definitely going to die. Yeah. And Jamie seems to get that, and the fact that someone else can sort of grok that really, um, I think his name is Nagata, uh, really kind of reaches through to him um i would argue that it is possibly religious because jamie says early in the film that he's an atheist Mm -hmm. but i mean he he looks at planes the way miyazaki movies look at planes this is (laughs) i I mean this is this is basically a live action hayao miyazaki movie the way it shoots planes and aerial Mm. things and um, you Miyazaki's know, that, kind that, of fixated on World War II era as well. <laughs> oh yeah, well, well, especially flying machines and those rapid advances in aviation that come with wartime is yeah. is a particular fascination. And and the fact that Jim, uh, he's he's in the middle of this attack where everyone is be- running for for cover, and yet he's just jumping for joy that he got to see the P fifty one because it's the Cadillac yeah, of the skies. This is something I absolutely adore about the way Jamie's character is presented, though, because of all the changes he goes through, all the transformations, depending on where he is and who he's with throughout the film, that one through line is his obsession with planes and his utter, utter love for them. And there were there's there's so many moments that connect him back with planes 
and with pilots as well. Um, from the, the toys to the, the downed plane in the garden that he takes such a huge risk that he doesn't realise. Yeah, he gets into it and starts fooling uh, playing around, but he's got a boy's view of war. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's but playing at Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing. I don't personally read his obsession with planes to be about the the war element of it the the what planes do yeah. planes are superior power and freedom in the sky that's yeah. what they represent and the way he um, there's there's one moment particularly and for the life of me I can't remember which plane it is but he goes up to it and puts his hand on the side that's the zero and all I could think was this is like Black Beauty this is this is like that that sort of He's almost seeing them as things that are alive, that he can really connect with on a, a level that he can't connect with other humans, mm. that he's desperately trying to. Like I said, he's he's trying to make contact with any uh, any human adult male, largely, who looks like they could take care of him. But the planes never let him down. They're both a... When he's younger, they're both a, about a, a power fantasy of freedom and exploration, and then they become this. This is how you escape. If you fly, you can get out of anything or go anywhere, and you're not you're not tied down, and you're not walled in, and you're not having to crawl under fences and through the water. the The planes are just they're, they're both a, a childhood fascination, and then also a very pragmatic sort of fascination for Jim that. Is, is a very clear through line to his character arc. Mm, yeah, and particularly towards the end when the American planes turn up, even though the bombs they're dropping could kill him as easily as anybody else in that area, to him they're saviors. They're here to to rescue them. Mm. That's uh, it, that's one of those key turning points because it's, it's uh, the the Doctor um, Nigel Havers runs up to him uh, to uh, it's this wonderful moment of stop trying to think so much this boy is bursting with exuberance amid the carnage and the you know doctor who's seen what this leads to is trying to say you are on the cusp of real life and you have no ability to defend yourself mm. because you're seeing this from a boy's point of view and you are now a man and that's when he starts to sob i can't remember I can't remember my mother's face because he has transitioned over those just few seconds. Mm, yeah. And then if you notice as well, immediately after that, the fawning thing kicks, kicks in again because when uh, Dr. Rollins picks him up and starts to carry him away, he starts reciting at him the Latin verbs that he was trying to drill into him to distract him from the dying people earlier in the film mm. because in his head, getting the Latin verbs right will make the doctor happy. This scene it basically is a macrocosm of the movie. It's it's excitement amid confusion and sorrow over loss. It's all of these emotions roiling up at once inside this tiny frame that doesn't know how to feel properly. It's also the most David Lean that he gets, both in terms of how he'll have these um, long takes of taking in this sweepy action. Like there's there's a a shot where we see three different planes cross the frame which were almost certainly real planes I, this obviously was before the age of digital effects there were the, third the scale that, planes i do know that for yeah. a fact yeah and and so we we see the these three planes cross the frame while jamie is watching them from above but also 
like he's below them but also above their line of flight so it's this very strange like perspective power dynamic mm. and then we get the scene of Rollins talking to him specifically about the runway and how Jamie says it if you think about it it's our runway which is uh, and then Rollins having to remind him no it's their runway Jim which you know, you don't get much more bridge on the river Kwai than that yeah uh, but it's it's again it's it's Spielberg kind of at, at the top of his hungry Spielberg game and there's an unnamed Japanese pilot uh, who's cl- uh, clearly a boy as well and is playing around with a toy plane who uh, saves uh, Jim's ass several times, again, wordlessly. They don't they communicate non-verbally, and it's through barbed wire. And part of Jim's journey is to you know, make friends with this kid, then see him given the pilot's gear and do what Jim would like to do. You know, you are now trusted with a plane. Here you go, go do that. And then he comes back at the end... And he's he was dressed in kamikaze pilot gear, and he gets out of his plane, and he is filled with regret and upset, and whatever he did was not the thing he was supposed to do. He's still alive, and he doesn't now know what to do. So this is an externalized part of Jim. And it's, it's because the plane wouldn't start. Like We see him like right. get up and ready to go, and he does the ceremony, and then the plane... The, the plane just won't start. It's like, I think it's like the last plane. Cause this is after the Americans bombed the shit out of that airfield. Yeah. So he's and so they have to like, com- com- fulfill his f- primary program, which is this just dark as this pitch dark thing of like this, this kid who wants to fly an airplane. And again, he's, he's Jim's age. He's like, what? 13, 14, 15 at most. And it's like, okay, get in the plane, go up and go die for us. And he's like, this is the best thing ever. And the fact that I can't do that is heartbreaking, which is just it just opens your heart. Just it is really rough to watch in the full context. It also shows at this stage how um, the desperate the Japanese have gotten. It was this is after the bombing, isn't it? Um, um, it's I, it's I think a few days before the I have this miniature soapbox about the bombing, but we don't have to get onto it. We can, um, no, we can if you want uh, to put it in context. They, the Japanese okay. um, soldiers leave the camp, leaving the uh, uh, British refugees effectively just wandering in the desert, and they pitch up at a um, uh, sports stadium, seemingly. Is that, is that, it's, I think it's a football stadium. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely enclosure. some kind of stadium, uh, and it's filled with these kind of like old relics of uh, the uh, that, that have been looted from all of the British homes. So it's kind of like the bones of civilization have been set up here. It reminded me of that scene in Return to Oz when Dorothy's wandering around the Gnome King's collection of all the things he's stolen, and. Uh, he sees his uh, parents' car there. So it's almost like if you just sat in the car, you'd still be in this same place. You just would have starved to death. He's with Miranda Richardson, who plays... Uh, again, she's another, so good. Uh, she's, it's very brittle. It's very quiet. She's a character named Mrs. Victor, who seems somewhat maternal for him, but also not sure about him and very aware that he's sort of coming into his uh, maturity and, and not wanting him to be corrupted and not wanting him to be destroyed, but also not trying to interfere too much with him. She's just maternal <laughs> enough for him to play out a very, very light Oedipal conflict without mm. actually engaging with him too much in a nurturing context. Yeah, there's, it's it's sl- it's slightly creepy, but in a kind of a coming-of-age way, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, and like, yeah also, his first like he, he he watches her and her husband start to make love and uh, through a curtain, and then that's when they decide, okay, this kid's got to go. Let's have a movie with the Americans. I, I, how that comes across though is, and it is extremely well framed. It's a really difficult scene to to get, as you say, not creepy or not mm. too creepy, but the. The emphasis is on the very slight moments of physical contact. And what that kind of says to me more is Jamie just having these little flashes of memory of his mother touching him in a nurturing mm. way. And that's kind of what he's he's feeling the loss of at that point. Yeah. And when Mrs. Victor, he's uh, feeding her water at one point in the stadium and she's kissing his hand and it's, again, this moment of weird contact for him. And her instinct at this point, because she has no energy left and nothing, she didn't have all of this inspiration and energy that he's been redoubling on throughout his uh, time there. She got sick and her recourse is to lie down and just, and she... You know, has nothing left in her, and she lies down and uh, to die. He says, "Pretend you're dead, so we won't have to go with the uh, rest of the uh, refugees." And she almost playfully grins and falls to the ground, and then really does die by the morning. And there's this industrial light and magic um, crafted scene of brightness in the sky, which is uh, the bombing of—is it Hiroshima or Nagasaki? Nagasaki. The atomic bomb, and there's this sort of a blast wave going across the sky, which um, and this sort of light show that comes with it uh, that um, he interprets as Mrs. Victor's soul leaving her body. And this is not something that Ballard witnessed in in real life. I think it was added for the movie, uh, but it does give this again. It's a turning a corner. It's a it's a, a point where he's presented with uh, you know somebody else very close to him just slipping away, mm-hmm. and this. He's more aware of the stalking presence of the Reaper who just keeps taking at this stage, which is, of course, then key to what's about to happen. Uh, Brendan, you said you were going to get on a soapbox, by all means. Okay, um, so this is, uh, again, this is one of the things that I think the movie really kind of sells, is just how desperate things were for the Japanese army at this point. Yeah. They're, they're running out of soldiers, they're running out of equipment, and so... Uh, a lot of the the justification that my country uses for dropping the atomic bomb um, is, oh, it saved thus and such thousand many American lives because we didn't have to fight our way through the Pacific. Where you know, actually, the uh, um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki like would have strengthened their resolve to, you know, fuck you, we're going to make you pay for every inch. It was it was actually the worry of losing all their equipment and people and then being carved up by the Russians and the Americans. Um, they they sort of touch on this a little bit because they talk about how the Russians are about to declare war on Japan as well. Mm. And this was right after Germany had lost and got split down the middle. So Japan made this really terrible calculus of like, well, look, we can lose thousands more citizens and then have our country split in two, or we can just surrender to the Americans. Mm. So let's keep our whole country and just do that. Um, but the and the America way it likes to justify this uh, effective atrocity, <sighs> this double atrocity, with Oof. well, it saved lives. Yeah, no, it didn't. No, we're just kind of the worst. I'm sorry, everyone. We're uh, that's yeah, okay. The British are fucking neck and neck with you. Colonialism, high five. Oh wait, no, let's not. Yeah, let's um, not. Let's <laughs> just be better than our great grandparents, <laughs> shall we? But but in in speaking of like particularly how this. This ties back to to Jim having a perception of something being religious. Again, it's associated with 
an airplane because it's you know the the Nagasaki bomb um, they were they were dropped by airplanes Fat Man and Little Boy um, and and it's it's a way of both kind of eulogizing Mrs. Victor but also sort of showing just how how awful and terrible this is because it turns out no that's not her soul going up to heaven she's just dead like she she was sick when we first see her in this camp so she's been deteriorating and then her husband we we guess abandons her because she can't find him when they're on the road and we never see him again. I did ask um, that. It, so, it felt very unclear, but I suppose you're also coming at it from the same confused viewpoint as Jamie. Like people are disappearing and it's you're when you're at his eye level, all you can see is the person walking in front of him with a backpack of shiny mirrors. Yeah. So did, did um, Mr. Victor, who's, you know, not quite as fond of Jamie as she is and is, is kind of like this sort of cold, distant guy did he just decide to leave his obviously dying wife behind? Did he die too? It's it's again, it's this really bleak sort of thing that they never quite fill in the corners, mm. but that almost makes it worse because you can kind of sit there and go, oh, ew. Or maybe that's even worse. I don't know. This is just bad. Yeah. I think I think uh, maybe concentration camps are bad. Uh, I'm, I'm going to drop a hot take here. Uh, maybe uh, no more camps. I'm going to say sorry on behalf of my stupid fucking country who invented them during the Boer War. Wee. Yay. <sighs> Go England. <clears throat> anyway, so um, after this harrowing situation where he is effectively now on his own, he wanders back to the camp. Uh, to to become lord of all he surveys because it, that was the place where he actually was where things were going right well, for he's, him. Well, he's he's following his mother's instruction again. He's lost everybody. Go home. And then that's and why that's he ends up on, on the, the bicycle. And then you get the echo of him on the bike. But this is when he re-encounters this young Japanese pilot, and there's this really cruel, almost Shakespearean. Um, passage of events here where the, uh, they, they, they communicate again non-verbally and then decide to, like young boys do, I know, let's chop this me- uh, melon in half with a Japanese sword. You hold it. I can't see anything going wrong here. Um, <laughs> Frankly, even if Basie hadn't turned up again, that was kind of doomed to end in disaster. Yeah, but at the same, it's, it's kind of cute in a kind of a, you know, that's, this is exactly what boys would do. Like, yeah. let's do this. But best case scenario, someone's losing a finger there. Mm. And uh, it, it frustrates me the way this scene is handled because there's just a little bit too much chaos, a little bit too much, like pe- men being thrown around in, in, in puddles and, and James screaming and shouting. And then he finds the, the Japanese pilot, pulls him out of the water after he's been shot and is effectively dead. His mouth is full of water, his lungs are full of fluid. And it, uh, because we've had this set up in an earlier scene where the doctor was asking him to press on a woman's chest to effectively perform a 1940s CPR, he starts, to, like, he's looking at his hands in a kind of, well, in his own words, I can bring everyone back. And this is just his... His brain's starting to snap here because, like, all of this trauma he's gone through and none of it makes any sense. And he, he, he thinks, if I press on this kid's chest enough times, I can bring him back because that one woman once looked at me that one time. She didn't come back, but I can do this. And obviously he's still reeling from the death of Mrs. Victor and the, the, just the disappearance of everyone and the fact that Basie left without him and that he wasn't important and all of that work and all of this stuff has been taken away. And then Spielberg decides, you know what, um, just in case people don't get the subtext of this, I'm going to have him <laughs> pressing on the chest of his younger self in school uniform, just in case people, it's not on the nose enough. And 
again, I just feel like an ever so slight re-edit of this scene. I, I could do it myself just taking things out. Just get rid of a little bit of the leaping around and screaming and take out that one shot and it's just a little bit tighter of a scene because it's a harrowing moment. This young boy that he feels connected to is gone and he can't bring him back. Yeah, I I do still like the 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 way it shows off some of the like little filmmaking gags they they had to use um, just to have Christian Bale's face in certain scenes where you can't really um, have young actors safely. So like you know you have like a, a double who's performing the CPR on Christian Bale. There's there's an early scene where there's like a Texas switch where they dump a boy into the truck and then he rolls down into the bed of the truck and then Christian Bale pops up with like a little cut on his forehead because he bumped his head and it's, you know, so yeah, I, I, it's, it's definitely Spielberg saying subtlety is for cowards. (laughs) (laughs) I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. Or alternatively, he left the script a little bit too close to George at dinner once and George was like, just gonna (laughs) scribble this little bit in here. And then Steve was like, hey Stephen, this rhymes. (laughs) It's like, well, if Tom wrote it, if it's in the script, it's in the movie. <laughs> this is written in Biro. Um, <laughs> Where did Jamie get a lightsaber from? <laughs> it's called a laser sword, Stephen. <laughs> is there room for Sebulba in this movie? <laughs> Sorry. Um, it, it's, what we're talking about is so harsh and so hard to to get through. Um we just got to lighten the load a little. But uh, there, I, I also noticed in this there are strange parallels with AI as well. Um, it's a lost boy again in a hostile world who doesn't seem to have a place but just keeps on surviving. And ultimately the, the finale is the dreamed of reunion with his mother. And at the same time, it's the same kind of ending because like he, he lies down to sleep but the world itself has already changed. It's 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 gone on. It's not the same thing as just go you know going back in time and being able to go to sleep with your mother there in, in comfort. Something's been lost. Something absolutely huge. And in the case of AI, it's pretty huge. Yes, Spielberg's really good at showing you kind of the like small personal costs of like apocalyptic world events. Yeah. Um, the only other tiny point, and there may not even be anywhere that you can say you can neatly slot this in, but in terms of little moments that show Jamie's childlike mentality towards the beginning when they're in the house and the first uh, explosion goes off in mm. the distance and you get that kind of almost earthquake-like shake. His father comes into the room and his immediate response is, I didn't mean it, he's doing that thing that kids do where mm. they take responsibility for everything, even the huge things that are clearly nothing to do with them. Yeah. Also, uh, I noted that when uh, he defies his uh, um, Chinese nurse Mm. and she's like, no, you've got to come with me. And he's like, no. And then he holds his milk to his cheek, almost in defiance. She then, I believe, slaps him on that same cheek when they meet again. And she's like, I don't have to do shit for you anymore. (laughs) That is the same. I hadn't even caught on to that because he's he's sort of like facing uh, somewhat away from the camera but it is his left cheek that she slaps with her right hand when there they're when they're raiding the house there's also a, a, a lovely little okay this is the opposite of seeing uh, him performing cpr on his own um 
corpse. Uh, and that's uh, when he looks around the bedroom, he sees like f- finger marks on the floor in the, um, uh, the, the beauty powder, indicating like detective signs of a struggle that, that has uh, gone on here and it horrifies him and he lurches away mm. as a result. Yeah, but we have no way of knowing whether that struggle was his parents or whether it was somebody else mm. or, you know, there's there's other moments. There's a, the, the point where he comes back to the house and sees the silhouette and thinks it's his mother and it's not. It turns out to be a Japanese man in a very close-fitting leg, Lucia. Indeed. Yeah, that's one of those, again... <laughs> <laughs> he's he's in good shape Absolutely. um but yeah the the moment that you're talking about that's again spielberg can be um subtle especially when he's trying to to kind of skeeve you out with it the 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 marks on on the floor that are clearly violence in this i i think it's makeup powder or, or face powder like you know this this contrast of what's supposed to be domestic versus what is a violent um transgression or or almost like uh desecration of his home like he has to open the open the door to let the wind in to blow away the evidence of whatever it was that was that's that's really working his brain over um but one of the other one of the other things i wanted to just briefly touch on with that opening bit is we do get to see some of jamie's both like his very childlike innocence but also kind of things that will turn into his survival skills um just him doing the like he's very deft with his hands um he's very quick and very sneaky and he's got good dexterity and we get to see a little bit of that when he's just popping the spoon into the cup which is this this thing that had to have taken like practice and mathematics to figure out the arc and the the placement like he moves the glass just a little bit closer and then boom slams down on a piece of silver that flips the spoon right into the glass it's like ha yeah i did that um there, there's a there's a whole bunch more of like little ticks in here that if you're really looking for what's going to pay off later that Jamie does kind of as an aside that really do pay off later in the film when he's running around the camps or or doing his swap stuff or, or sneaking around behind Nagata's back. School of Movies is able to keep putting out this content every week thanks to the wonderful people who support us on Patreon. And everyone at the $15 tier gets sponsorship credit each week, so a special thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hetner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Veyi, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksch, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Marty Huey, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter.
Yeah, I, I highly recommend that people watch this. Um, go, go in knowing that it is it is a rough watch. It is not something you watch for fun, but it is also not the same sort of grueling experience you're going to get with Schindler's List or even arguably Saving Private Ryan. And and for me personally, one of the reasons um, that I was so, so excited that you were going to do this particular season and excited to be on the show mm. is that the, the familiar hallmarks of Spielberg's filmmaking style um, – grafted onto such a different subject than I'd seen him do before was one of the things that really made me want to dig into the meat of filmmaking and studying film as a craft. Um, Cause this is something that I saw for the first time when I was a young teenager. And so I, I'd, I'd seen Spielberg movies before, but at that age, you're not necessarily thinking of, well, how do you make movies as a piece of art? You just think, Oh, I like watching this thing. So I'm going to watch this thing. And so this was kind of one of those one of those turning point movies for me. And so I've always kind of gravitated towards the the things that Spielberg is doing here that you can see reflected in other of his films, um, but aren't being used for, again, the same purpose as, say, you know, E.T. Like you you showed that um, that poster of uh, the the back to back E.T. with Elliot silhouetted against the moon in the sky. Mm hmm right next to the Empire of the Sun poster where it almost looks like Elliot's been shot out of the sky and he's the plane that's about to crash oh, onto Jesus. the ground. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it's it's almost like a call and response to like, oh, here's childhood ascendant and triumphant and here's not that. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, Brendan, where can people find the recent work that you are most proud of? Um, recently, I've been uh, posting reviews on normannerd.blogspot.com. Um, mo- we'll probably have a, uh, a a review of the new Emma uh, from Autumn to Wild up on there, uh, which is delightful. You can also follow me on Twitter at BLCAgnew, and I occasionally contribute to the uh, weekly movie columns at Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Fantastic, thank you. And we will be back on the Spielberg train with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, followed by a very special show where we go back to Jurassic Park. We revisit and reappraise Hook, and we swallow the bitter medicine that is Schindler's List. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Weeks after that exchange, I would be parted from my parents, as New York, Massachusetts, and Boston fell to the new encroachment of the creatures. A veritable flood of fleeing refugees from that area washed through the state heading west. We had avoided being overcome in England, but now this plague had finally caught up with us. My parents and I were not prepared, and we were leaving the plantation of a cotton magnate when our coach met the procession along the road. It seemed like we were the only ones heading back east, pushing fruitlessly against the current of bodies. There were frightened, disheveled people as far as the eye could see. I recall my mother's terrified face, my father's anger, and the screams when an individual in the crowd who had been hiding their wounds turned and took a bite out of the person next to them. From my window, I saw a ripple of chaotic movement as panic suddenly gripped the throng. We were dragged from the coach as people milled about this way and that. I was knocked to the ground and let go of my mother's hand, trembled and kicked as altogether in a heaving morass they fled the sudden carnage and more infected made themselves known. I remember thinking as a stabbing pain shot through my body from what I now suspect was a steel toe cap fracturing one of my lower ribs. I am going to die. My mother is going to die. My father is going to die. So many of these people are going to die. I was roughly pulled to my feet by a Scotsman with a grim face. He pushed me towards the edge of the crowd and told me to run. I glanced back again to ascertain whether my parents' faces could be seen, but I was unable to even make out the coach anymore. Such was the human swarm I now stood at the periphery of. This was a stampede that nobody could pull under control. My father's words filtered back and I broke from the herd, rushing as best I could over the fields and searching for anything familiar. We weren't too far from our plantation and I knew that this would be where my parents would return. I ran, holding my side and the aching rib there, over fields and through farmsteads, spotting the familiar telegraph towers that led to the road which ran past our front gate, and there, eventually, I found Bellworth. It had been a week since I had beheld the manor house. It stood deserted, and I was to find inside, stripped of much of its practical necessities. The front door stood open but not broken, so the remaining servants had either declined to lock up on their way out, or else were the perpetrators of its plundering. I walked the silent halls, spotting the empty spaces where lanterns or bedclothes, food and what little weaponry there was had been taken. I scavenged a little stale bread and jam and retreated to my bed, which mercifully was untouched. And there I waited, sleeping, eating, reading, waiting for my father to return and glare at me with a critical eye for not attending to renovations in his absence, waiting for the cool touch of my mother's hand upon my forehead. The worst moments were the dreams. At night, when all outside was black and silent, I would entertain that I could hear the creeping carriers of this vile malady scratching at my windows. They terrified me, and yet I retained my fascination a facet of my intention was willing them to approach. So I slept less. I lay in the fortress of bedclothes, pillows and blankets I had created, a single candle illuminating my books as I read through the night, awakening each morning 
slumped in the shaded cotton walls, nurturing the tiniest hope that I would not be alone, but also a nameless horror that others would come. I soon got fairly sick of living in squalor and began to tidy the rooms, one after another, arranging the worryingly small amount of provisions in the kitchen storeroom. My father's study I restored to order, laying out his pen and ink, ludicrously under the impression that he might like to document their lengthy adventure when they returned. My mother's clothes that had not been stolen were rehung carefully for her, should she wish to don her Sunday best. You must understand that what logic I had available to me was depleted by my tender years, my dehydration, and my willingness to fantasize in the face of despair. I watched many suns go down, picking over my decision to flee so many times that I fancied I had any other choice. Eventually, I had taken to wearing my roller skates around the house, foolishly risking injury for the thrill of clearing the empty hallway spaces in mere seconds. I took so many tumbles it is a wonder my rib healed at all. And then one morning, I had visitors. A woman and four men approached the front door while I was redoing my mathematics, sat upon the stairs. They would have seen a shocked, pale face look up from his exercises. For a moment, my mind raced over how secure this house was. Would I have to defend it? Construct elaborate traps with the scant materials I had at my disposal to discourage these invaders? <laughs> 